Oh, you can go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Alistair. You may remember me. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's. And uh, th yeah, there's a lot of strange things about this Sunday. It's snowing. You know, I was just in Chicago for a week, and when I got off the plane and I spent my week there, and when I left, I thanked God that it wasn't snowing in Chicago. And then I come back, and it snows. And so, you know, don't look, look a snow gift horse in the mouth. They're one of those, those teachings. Uh, it's also an odd Sunday because um, the Vancouver Canucks defeated the Chicago, Chicago Bulls for the World Cup, and a bunch of people are missing service for that. And that, that's OK. It happens. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so that, that's really neat. Um, but really what I find the most odd about preaching on the fourth Sunday of Advent at St. Peter's Fireside is uh, it's our Christmas service, and it's also the fourth Sunday of Advent. So what theme do you go with? Do you go with waiting in the dark, or do you go with the hope of the world? And so I'm trying to bring those two things together this morning. Sound good? Uh, while I was on sabbatical last year, my family, we spent six weeks in Victoria, and we stayed with my parents. And there is nothing quite like moving back in with your parents when you're 40. Uh, but it was okay. My parents have a guest suite in, the, in their backyard, and their home is detached from it. And so it wasn't quite like reverting to being a teenager, but it kind of was. Uh, and it was great, though. There's this walkway between the two houses, and most evenings, uh, when you're going back and forth, you can look up, and all you see is the stars. But one evening, from the walkway, we heard this cry screaming. Do you know that sound, the cry scream? Not quite crying, not quite screaming, a bit of both. Uh, Ansley was outside cry screaming, and so Julia and I rush outside to find out what's going on, and Ansley, she had been going between the homes in the dark in her bare feet, and then it happened. Barefooted, Ansley did not trip and fall. Barefooted, Ansley did not stub her toe. Barefooted, my eldest daughter, the full force of her foot, squished a slug with her bare foot. <laughs> a banana slug. It oozed. <laughs> it oozed between her toes like if you squeezed a banana in your hand. Friends, it is the most disgusting foot I have ever cleaned in my life. I don't know how Julia got out of it. It took me 20 full minutes of scrubbing to get the slug off her foot. During Advent, we've been listening <laughs> to voices crying out in the dark. And throughout this series, I've thought about that voice that cries out, Daddy, I stepped on a slug, you know, the voice of small s suffering. But of course, through Advent, what we're really trying to do is also connect with the voices of suffering that cry out, of the big s suffering, right? These, these voices that cry out throughout the world calling out for help, and the voices that have become too parched to say anymore. And, and of course, there's the voices. They look at the state of the, the world, and they look at all the kinds of suffering, and they start wondering, like, where is God? And of course, some voices conclude, well, there is no God. You know, there's the voice of Charles Templeton. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was once uh, the partner of, in the ministry of the famous evangelist Billy Graham. But eventually, Templeton parted ways with Graham and even the Christian faith. And in his book, Farewell to God, he shares some of his reasons. And when asked what his breaking point was, he says it was a photograph in Life magazine of a woman in northern Africa 
holding her dead child because of a devastating drought. And then he wrote, how could a loving God do that to this woman? And so we listen to the voices in the dark and we hear these cries of suffering and it makes us wonder what kind of God are we crying out to? You know, is God the kind of God that might step on us like a slug because he's completely oblivious to our reality? Is he the kind of God that actually delights in stepping on us? Is he aloof? Is he remote? Is he silent? Is he non-existent? And I'm not going to pretend like I can answer the voices of suffering this morning. What I want us to do is empathize with people who hear these cries, who see the horror of the world around us, and they conclude there is no God. But I also want to remind us that if the message of Christmas is going to have any significant meaning, if it's going to have some teeth to it, it has to mean something in the darkness, this darkness we traverse throughout Advent. Because Christmas is not just a time to, you know, stir our nostalgia and revel in joy and hope. Christmas speaks to us when we're grieving loss, struggling to hope, being overwhelmed by life, confronting tragedy, and wondering if this season really can bear the weight of the world. And the message of Christmas reminds us that God came down into the earth among us in the dark. A professor of mine at seminary used to say, uh, God becoming human, for him, must be like the idea of us becoming like a slug. God made himself small and minuscule and most of all vulnerable by becoming a human in Christ. And so when you get past the sparkle in the decoration, when you get past the lights and the sheen and the presence in the celebration, Christmas brings us to Christ, the Son of God, who is born as God's voice in the darkness of this world. And so that's the voice we're going to listen to as the last sermon of Advent. And we want to listen to what God says about his Son. But we need to adjust our ears this morning because God doesn't just speak about his Son in our passage and actually pause you're probably wondering, what is this sermon going to be about after that reading? And I realized there was a, a misprint. And so you guys got almost all of Matthew 12 when you're supposed to get four verses. Thank you, Colton. But I'm not preaching about Beelzebub this morning. Don't worry. <laughs> Matthew 12, what we see is God sings about his son. And if we have ears to hear, we're going to hear God singing. So let's read that passage one more time. Matthew 12, verses 18 to 21, not verses 18 to 42. Here is my servant, whom I've chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he'll proclaim justice to the nations. He'll not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he's brought justice through to victory. In, the name of, in his name, the nations will put their hope. This is an absolutely perfect portrait of Jesus. What we've just read is the direct speech of God himself speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And throughout Isaiah, there's four songs about this servant. And this is the first of the four of them. And all of these songs, written hundreds of years in advance, the New Testament writer said, these songs, we see it now. They're about Jesus. The words explain in God's view who Jesus is, what Jesus is going to do, and how he's going to do it. And so I want to look at these three things. Who is God saying Jesus is? What will Jesus do? And how is Jesus going to do it? The first points will be brief. The second point, the last point, not so much. So let's begin with the first point. Who is God saying Jesus is? 
As I've said, this, this passage from Isaiah quoted by Matthew, it's a song. It's a, a song that God sings. And I don't know if many of us think about God that way. Do you think about God as a singing God? It's as if the truths that God wants to communicate to us about his son are so joyful and happy and cause for rejoicing that God can't help but burst into song. And in the song, God sings something beautiful about his son and something peculiar about his son. Uh, The beautiful thing we read about is that the father, God the father, delights in the son simply because he loves the son. He delights in Jesus because of who Jesus is, not because of what Jesus came to do. God says in verse 18, here is my servant. It's, in the Hebrew, it's literally, hey, look at him. And then God says, this is the one I love, in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. So God's saying, look, I want you to see how much I love my son, how much I delight in my son. Yes, God is the parent on the airplane who says, can I show you some photos of my children? But this passage in the Old Testament actually gives us a glimpse into the Trinity, into the tri-unity of God. Yes, if you go through Scripture, you're not going to find the word Trinity, but it's a concept that helps us see plainly what is revealed in Scripture about the nature of God. God is three persons in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this is utterly important for us. Before God ever created the world, God loved. Love precedes everything. There was love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. If God wasn't three in one, God could be all-powerful. He could have many attributes. But do you realize what that means? He would have had to create in order to love. Because love has to have an object. But the fact that God is three in one means love is at the center of the universe before God ever created. God wasn't alone in in eternity singing, I wish I had someone to love. He loved. And out of the overflow of that love, he created. And so the beautiful thing God says is that he loves and delights in the eternal son. But the peculiar thing God says about Jesus is that he's my servant. How do love and servanthood coexist? I want to say that this is only peculiar if we separate it from the beautiful thing. If God had a son just to have a servant, well, yeah, that would be unnerving. But God calls Jesus my servant, not to reduce Jesus, but because love gives. It pours itself out. It serves for the good of others. And so God rejoices in Jesus as his servant because Jesus is utterly committed to serving God's love and will. And I want us to see this morning that this connection between love and service is actually very, very reassuring. Because when you think about anything and everything Jesus has done for us, it's it's always coming out of a place of double commitment to us. Do you see that? Jesus came into the world to meet us in our suffering and, and help us and to serve us. He did it for our sake, but he also did it to fulfill the will of his Father. So in everything Jesus does, it's for us, but it's also for the will of his Father. He's doubly committed to us in all the things he does for us. So that's point one. Who is Jesus? He's the beloved Son of God, the servant of God's love. And our second point, well, what will Jesus do? What is he doubly committed to do? God sings about the justice Jesus will bring. 
Jesus will bring justice. This is what he will do. Uh, We read about this first in verse 18. Uh, God sings that Jesus will proclaim justice to the nations. And then in verse 20, he sings about how Jesus will bring justice through to victory. Now, we throw this word justice around all the time. Like, I've never met someone in our church who's like, yeah, I'm not really into justice. Like, of course you are. And when you think about justice, usually what's the first word that probably comes to mind? Social justice. But none of us are totally sure about what that means. We know it kind of means something about equity and goodness for all people, but how you get there, what it actually looks like, diverges depending on the framework you use. And so I just want to bring us to the biblical framework for a moment and and ask, well, what does justice mean here in this passage? What is God talking about? And to understand justice in the Bible, you also have to understand righteousness. These two words go hand in hand together, which is great. It helps us understand justice. The only problem is we don't really know what righteousness means. Uh, there's a song I love by an uh, angry Scottish band called Biffy Clyro. And in the chorus, they say, you were not right, you were just righteous. So just imagine that in Lloyd's voice, you were not right, you were just righteous. And I don't even have to explain that, do you? Do I? Like, you know exactly what they're talking about. People who are right but wrong about how they go about being right. Or in the case where they're wrong and also wrong in the way they go about being wrong. But unlike this kind of, like, high and holy, smug self-righteousness. In Scripture, righteous means being right and also being right in the way you go about being right and being right in such a way it brings about what is good and right for all people. Did you catch that? Righteous is about being right and also being right in the way that you go about being right so that the way you're right brings about what is good and right for all people. (laughs) This is why I'm not a seminary professor. The writers of the Hebraic scriptures often picture this in another way. They they, they take straight and crooked. So the ways of God's justice, when everything in the world is the way it ought to be, it is straight. But the ways of humanity are crooked and just. And so righteous or justice is about God making what is crooked in humanity, in our relationships, in society. He's making it straight. He's bringing it into alignment with his righteousness and his character. So justice is how God establishes what is right and good for all people. And he's right in the way he goes about being right. And he brings about what is good by bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So this is justice. And when Jesus proclaims justice, it's not just words. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, they're actually forgiven. And it is an act, you wouldn't think of it initially, would you, of justice. This is an act of justice because Jesus is taking what is crooked, sin, and healing it, making it straight, and also restoring that person into a right relationship with God. So it's good. When Jesus heals someone with leprosy, it's an act of justice because he's removing a disease that separated people from community. He's taking what's crooked. He's making it straight so that they can be restored into a right relationship with their community. It's an act of justice. When Jesus confronts religious hypocrisy or people who are oppressing others or injustice of any kind, yes, he calls it out, but he also invites them to start living in a more just way. And should people repent and believe and take what's crooked and allow Jesus to make it straight, it will restore them into a right relationship with God and with their community. All of this is how Jesus proclaims justice in word and deed. This is what he came to do. Now, at the end of time, on the day of judgment, 
There's a dimension of God's justice that is going to be retributive. God's going to address injustice and oppression and evil and give out the just consequences. But what Scripture shows us is God's justice also has a restorative bent because God wants to restore his relationship with people and how we relate to one another, how we relate to our community and society, how the nations even relate to one another. And the hope we get in this passage, the hope of all nations, is that Jesus will bring this justice to victory. What we see in his life is a glimpse of the kingdom that he is going to bring in its entirety when he returns, this second advent we hope for. And this gives us hope in the dark. First, it gives us hope in the dark because we remember that when Jesus came into the earth, he came and walked among us in the darkness. And he knew how costly justice must be to address all the horrors of sin and suffering in the world. Our crookedness required the crooked beams of the cross. So he can empathize with the experience of being in the dark and waiting for justice to come. And second, Jesus bringing justice to victory gives us hope because even in the most hopeless and bleak situations where we can bring no human justice, when a mother holds her dead child in her arms because of a drought, Jesus assures us that when he establishes his kingdom, when he returns, there will be justice. We know not how he will make something like that right, but we're promised he will. So this is what Jesus came to do. He came to bring justice. We have a beloved son of God who serves us, and he serves us by bringing justice. And now our final point, well, how is he going to do it? And in this servant song from Isaiah, God sings about two ways Jesus is going to proclaim justice. First, he's going to bring justice with humility. He's not going to quarrel or cry out, and no one's going to hear his voice in the streets. There's no fanfare, shouting matches, no uh, paid promotions, no arrogance or bloated claims, no fake self-importance, you know, no doublespeak, no carefully manicured image. He's not come to stoke the fires of antagonism. He'll face conflict when he needs to, but his goal is to bring justice in human relationships. That's why he came. Second, and this is where I really want to dwell, Jesus brings justice for broken people. We read in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I mean, this might be one of the most beautiful things God says in all of Scripture. These are the words of the Lord. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is a picture of spiritually damaged people. And if you don't think that's you, as a pastor I know likes to say, you don't know anything. This is all of us. A reed was used for a musical instrument or measuring things or for a pen, for writing things. And when you bruise a reed, it doesn't just bend backwards, it bruises in the middle. And the Hebrew word is actually crush. So when a reed is bruised, it's actually crushed internally. It's an internal bruising. And if it's bruised and broken, it's completely useless. No big deal. Like, reeds are cheap and they're plentiful, so you can throw it away, get another one. And a smoldering wick, you know, on a candle, it's a sputtering, smoky, smelling nuisance. And it might have once given clear light, but not anymore. It's dim at best. And once again, 
Wicks are cheap and plentiful, so throw it away, get another one. But Jesus will not discard broken people. He will not throw us away. It's our brokenness that actually stirs his compassion. It's our brokenness that brings his heart to our own. It's our brokenness that draws Jesus to us so that we can experience his justice. You see, Jesus, he came for people who are bruised, people who have done things to themselves, who have done things to others, people who have had things done to them, or the accumulation of sin and sorrow, people who feel so spiritually useless that they couldn't imagine God ever making anything good of them. These are exactly the people Jesus came to serve and save. And maybe like a bruised reed, you feel this invisible internal bruising. You know, outside, you appear fine. It looks like you have your act together. But inwardly, inwardly, you're dying. You're, you're falling apart. You're struggling day by day. You feel that internal bruising. You try to keep going. You put on the veneer. But Jesus, he will not break the bruised reed. Jesus comes beside us with gentleness and mercy, and out of his own strength and goodness, he slowly and carefully and patiently braces us and cares for us and tends to us until that reed can play a new tune or write a new chapter. And maybe you feel like you're the smoldering wick. You once burned brightly, but now you're on the cusp of burnout. You feel like you're no longer useful to God. Maybe your faith is a shadow of what it once was, and maybe it's, it's almost gone, and maybe it feels like your enjoyment of life is just flickering away. The good news is Jesus doesn't quench the flickering flame. He's not looking for perfect faith. He's not looking even for strong faith. Instead, Jesus, he comes beside us, and he pours the oil of his Holy Spirit upon us. He gently fans us back into flame over time. It's as if he comes near us and cups his hands around us so that we can stabilize, so that we can become, over time, his lights in a dark place. And this is all good and well, isn't it? But how do we make sense of the reality that we do suffer and that we do experience bruising and that we do flicker from time to time? Why does God allow us to do this? First, we have to recognize there's no promise in this passage that we won't be bruised. There's no promise that the flame might not flicker. Now, the Lord's gentleness with the bruised reed or the smoldering wick, it doesn't ensure you will not suffer. It's not a promise that everyone will be healed in this life. If you think about the miracles we see throughout the Gospels, every single person who was healed by Jesus, guess what? Got sick again and died. Even the people who experienced the miracle of being raised to life in this life, guess what? Died again. The miracles we see in Scripture are always first and foremost, always, 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 signs of the kingdom to come. A glimpse of what life will be like when the kingdom is fully established on earth as it is in heaven. Should we pray for miracles? Absolutely. But when they don't come, it doesn't mean something's wrong. It just means the kingdom has not yet come. So let's not turn this passage into a false promise. Let's let it stir us in remembrance that during Advent, we look at the darkness, we look at these areas where we want God to move, and we look 
to Christ in hope that he will one day bring his justice to victory. There's a wonderful essay written some 400 years ago by Richard Sibbs on this passage. And he says that spiritual bruising is essential because this is how the Holy Spirit levels ground in our heart. This is how God moves us from self-reliance to dependence upon Christ. And it's, it's no small feat because bruising is how God works within our souls to take what is crooked and make it straight. There's no comfortable way of doing that. It can be painful. And for every single one of us, there is at least one area in our lives where Jesus Christ, right now, right now today, is teaching us to rely on him. Whether that's for the very first time, or the second time, or the countless time, innumerable times. Every spiritual bruise, every time the wind comes through and threatens the flame, it is an opportunity to encounter the tenderness and gentleness and compassion of Jesus in our lives. But the trouble is that so often we think we've got it on our own. And maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, we say, Jesus, I've got this. I'm still very much in control. I'll come to you once I've got it handled a bit better. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work when we don't come to Christ for help. And when we try to deal with things this way, we end up missing his mercy and we risk breaking ourselves and snapping the reed and snuffing out the flame. The Christian life is not God saying, get your act together. It is not God helps those who help themselves. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is not saying live up to this great standard, jump through these hoops. Rather, the place where you feel wounded, the place where you feel most vulnerable, that is where you encounter Christ. That is where you discover the power of his spirit. Jesus is not interested in your resume. He's interested in your heartache. That's what draws his heart to yours. And the past few months have been some of the hardest and darkest months for us. But Julia and I have experienced firsthand that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Because this is how the servant works. Because he's committed to love. He's committed to justice. And in every way possible, he seeks to restore with his justice. But do you see, that means Jesus doesn't just come to diagnose our condition. He doesn't just stand up and point out like, Bruised reed, smoldering wicks, smoldering wick, bruised reed. No, Jesus came to serve, and he serves by delivering the death blow to the root of all injustice, all corruption, and all evil. You know, if he was just a good friend who put his hand on our shoulders when we're struggling or suffering, that would be nice, and that would be comforting, but it wouldn't be enough. It's not getting to the root issue. Like any physician worth their merit would never be content just to treat your symptoms, they want to get to the root cause. And that's precisely what Jesus did on the cross. He serves our greatest need. He gets to the root cause. He delivers a death blow to sin. Sin is the root cause of all injustice in the world. Sin is the root cause of everything that bruises us and makes us flicker. Sin is the root cause of everything that might tell us we are unlovable. And this is what Jesus diagnoses. And this is what he came to heal 
On the cross, Jesus was the reed that was broken. On the cross, he was the smoldering wick that was snuffed out. And in the darkness, his voice cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a powerful and mysterious way, this is the justice of God at work. God justly dealing with sin upon Christ, but God also justifying us sinners through our union with Christ. And death could not stop him. That's the good news. He will bring justice to victory. Death could not stop him because his life was underwritten by the eternal current of God's love, the delight of the Father. Do you think the eternal Father, God of God, light of light, would let his son remain in death? Heavens no. So if you're united with Christ, do you think he's going to let death overcome you? It is nothing to him. It's nothing to him. It's a moment. From Scripture's perception, it is a light, momentary affliction that will be eclipsed by an eternal weight of glory. And so while we wait in the dark, we hold on to this hope that Jesus will finish what he started when he returns. This is what Advent is all about, that in the dark we can hold on to the hope that he'll bring justice to victory. I just want to return to Charles Templeton briefly, this friend of Billy Graham who left his faith because of the voices of suffering that cry out in the dark. And in an interview toward the end of his life, he was asked, point blank, what do you think about Jesus now? This man who had walked away from faith for most of his adult life, in his old age, what do you think of Jesus now? This is what he said. He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? He continues, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. He's the most important human being who has ever existed. And then Templeton says, I miss him. I miss him. And the interviewer says, then he began to weep. You can leave faith behind and all of its baggage, but you cannot so easily walk away from Jesus. You can miss a great person to be sure, but you weep over someone whose gentleness has touched your soul. You can't forget it. Friends, in the darkness, you may always struggle with aspects of the Christian faith. You may always have unanswered doubts and questions. You might not ever be fully satisfied with an answer to why does a good and loving God allow so much evil and suffering to occur in the world. But we have a God who's acquainted with our suffering in the dark. We have a voice that cried out on our behalf. We have the gentleness of his spirit tending to us. And as we struggle in the dark, we have the hope that he will bring justice to victory at his return. You do not have to miss Jesus 
nor do you have to miss out on Jesus. Advent reminds us there's an alternative. We can hold on to hope. That in the bleakest and darkest situations, all we're doing is waiting for justice to be brought to victory. And it is guaranteed because Christ has defeated the grave. Let's pray.